Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. That's where we're going to be, be working from today. Our sermon is from Genesis 3. We've seen, uh, we've seen a couple of sermons in our series working through the book of Genesis. Uh, we saw God and creation in Genesis chapter 1. We saw humanity having been created in the image of God in Genesis chapter 2. Today we're going to look at sin and the fall. And kind of when, when uh, you know, the story goes, goes wrong. How sin enters the world. Um, what that looks like. How Adam and Eve are tempted to sin. And we're going to consider how, you know, what happens. Like how sin enters, what happens when it does. Uh, you know, how Adam and Eve responded after they sinned against God. How God responds to their sin and pronounces curses uh, against Adam and against Eve and the, the serpent. So, and we'll just consider, you know, what that means for us. You know, Christians living in 2021, how this, like, story of how humanity and the, the world kind of began and was created, how does that affect us here and now today? So, we're going to dive right in. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to read Genesis chapter 3 in its entirety, and then we will, then we'll get to work. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, uh, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. You'll know good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree and, uh, that I commanded of you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of dust you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, uh, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask your blessing on the reading and the hearing of your word We pray that a supernatural work would happen in our hearts um, among us as we're gathered here so that we might encounter you in it. Lord, we pray that you would soften our hearts, make us humble so that we might receive what you have for us. We commit these next few minutes to you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so being verse 1, the serpent is this kind of crafty, cunning, you know, uh, guy that kind of sneaks in, makes his way uh, up to the woman, up to Eve. We don't, this is our first mention of, of the serpent. We don't know uh, who he is, you know, um, by, by reading up until now. The only clue that we have into who the serpent is comes from uh, later in the Bible. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we read that, uh, that the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So according to Revelation chapter 12, the serpent is Satan. So, so when, you, when you see the serpent in Genesis 3, you can just kind of substitute in uh, Satan for him in your, in your mind. And he, and he kind of makes his way up to Eve and says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the, the garden? It's kind of a question, right? God kind of, or Satan starts with this kind of leading question, almost a snarky, uh, you know, derogatory question, right? Did, did God really say that you can't eat of any tree uh, in, in the garden? Almost like in, 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 in shock, disbelief. I can't believe that this God that claims to be good would, you know, withhold all of these good things in this garden from you. There's no, there's, you don't have any freedom. You can't do anything that you want. Which, of course, Satan, the serpent, knows that that's not the case because, uh, you know, we can kind of deduce from other places in Scripture that Satan himself was created long before humanity was created in the, the garden. Um, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28 uh, kind of give us some evidence that, that Satan was created prior to the world and he, he and his, uh, you know, kind of uh, you know, cohorts fell and rebelled against God and were cast out of heaven. That, that all happened prior to uh, the creation of the world that we see in uh, Genesis 1, 2, and, and 3. 
And so, so Satan is opposed to God. Satan hates God. Satan wants to, uh, you know, get back at God. But God is more powerful than Satan, and he can't. And so Satan watches God create uh, the world and, and love the world and, and like the world. But then specifically, Satan watches God create humanity and he knows that God loves humanity and has set his affections on humanity. And so Satan, in, a, in an attempt to get back at God, kind of targets and sets his, you know, uh, he, he uh, you know, intentionally tries to deceive and to, you know, coerce or, or to invite humanity to join him in his rebellion uh, against God. So, he, so, this is, so this is all kind of a, a plot, a ploy, right? You can't eat of any tree uh, in, in the garden. God must not be that good if he... You know, if he asks you to, to if, if those are the kinds of rules that he, that he puts on it. And then here's how Eve responds. Um, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you, lest you die. Which is not exactly what God said, right? So God, God said, if you eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, uh, or actually God says, if you eat in the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. So, so uh, you know, he... he he kind of has more specificity um, than, than how Eve kind of represents it here. But she adds this phrase, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So it's almost, you know, it's almost as if the serpent's influence of doubting God's word, questioning God, um, is starting to take root in Eve's, in Eve's heart, right? She's already starting to take liberties with God's word. She's, she's modifying it ever so slightly, changing it, whether it's intentionally or uh, inadvertently. So she says, yeah, God says we can eat all these trees, but not this one. We can't eat it or we can't touch it. And then the serpent says, you will surely not die. It's, it, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and, and evil, right? You can't trust God. God's word can't be, God said that you will die, but you, that you can't, like, God is, he, it's not that he is trying to uh, keep you from doing something that will hurt you and kind of ruin your life and cause you to die. Instead, God is withholding something that is good from you. God is, is not creating space for you to enjoy all that life has to, to offer. You won't die. This is, you know, God's trying to control you. God's trying to manipulate you. This is important because Satan's kind of first tactic in saying that you will surely not die is kind of a, it, it actually informs kind of how we understand the, the nature of sin. It's called harmardiology, is the, the doctrine of sin. And so uh, Satan's first, uh, you know, he, he tries to crack the foundation of Eve's understanding of belief in and trust in God and his word. All sin starts with your theology, right? Behavioral sins are born out of, you know, a, 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 the, a theo theological error, essentially. You believe wrong things about God, and then that kind of gives birth, that, that kind of bears fruit in behavioral sin. So it's, you know, gossip, slander, sexual sin, adultery, dishonesty, theft, right? Whatever the sin is, the first step toward that sin is kind of a, an eroding of or a deterioration of your understanding of who God is, right? God is not sovereign, 
So, so God doesn't have authority over me, so I don't need to fear his judgment, so I might as well go ahead and do whatever I please, regardless of what God has instructed me. Or, God is not good, and so, so I know that God has instructed me to do X, Y, and Z, or to refrain from A, B, and C. God has instructed me to practice the spiritual disciplines, but, but, um, but I don't believe him. I think that God is lying to me. I, I, I don't think that God is good. I don't think that he has my happiness, uh, that, that that's his, you know, end game. I think that the best way for me to uh, accomplish or to, to ex- experience true joy would be to cast off the restraints that God has shackled me with and ignore his word and go my, my own way. Long before we throw ourselves into behavioral sins, the process starts with adopting a deficient or defective or distorted view of who God is. We stop believing that he's sovereign. We stop believing that he's good. We stop trusting his word. And then the more that our beliefs about God are are skewed, the more that our theology starts to crack and erode, then that's when behavioral external sins start to kind of pop up uh, in the the void that's that's been left. Bad theology leads to behavioral sins. All behavioral sins start with bad theology. But it's not just that, that, that Satan, that the serpent, is trying to kind of uh, crack at and, and uh, erode uh, Eve's theology and how she understands God, who she understands God to be. It's, it's also that he is trying to get her in, in this void that's cr- being created in her worldview, in her, her understanding of spiritual reality, right? God was here, and as I erode and crack and kind of remove God from the picture, Eve's next strategy then is to get Eve to put herself in place where God was. So you will surely not die. So he's attacking your theology. In fact, what will happen is God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you, Eve, you will be like God. So that's kind of the the other aspect of harmardiology that we see from these verses here is that one, sin starts with your theology. It starts with a deficient understanding of who God is. But two, sin is the usurping of God's role and his right place and his throne. It's a creature uh, presuming to take the place of the creator. It's a, it's a citizen of the kingdom kind of creating a, a, you know, executing a coup and trying to take the place of the king of the kingdom, right? God knows that if, if you eat the fruit, you will be like him and God doesn't want you to be, right? You, Eve, you have the power to, to rise above your, your station. You don't have to stay where you are. You don't have to be a creature with some God in authority over you. You can defy. You can rebel. You can transcend. You can elevate. You can, you can be equal with God. You don't have to submit to his authority anymore. You don't have to listen to what he says anymore. You can be, your, you can be autonomous. You can be your own God. That's, that's Satan's sales pitch. To Eve at the outset of humanity. You don't have to submit to God. You don't have to listen to God. God doesn't have any, God doesn't get to tell you what to do. You can be your own God. You can elevate yourself to the place of of God. Right? Right. Satan doesn't entice Eve, and consequently he doesn't entice humanity with money or sex or toys or material possessions, he entices her, he entices us with autonomy. No one 
can tell you what to do. You can do whatever you want. You're in control, right? The, the main thing that the human heart is most allergic to is, is someone else other than me having authority over me. And the main thing that the human heart is enticed by is autonomy, complete, total autonomy to do what I want, and no one can tell me what to do. No one can be in charge of me. And that's, that's the, pro- the problem of Genesis 3 is that our insatiable uh, thirst for and obsession with autonomy, where I can do what I want and no one can tell me what to do, just runs smack dab into God's inevitable, ontological, like the, the, into the, the inevitability of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. God has authority by definition of who he is, and we don't want anyone to have authority over us. And those two things kind of crash into each other in Genesis 3. The serpent says, you won't die. You'll be like God. You can make the rules. You get to say what's good and what's evil. You get to determine what's right and what's wrong. You get to be the one in charge. You get to be sitting on the throne. So Eve, her her understanding, her view of God is deteriorating, it's eroding, and then she sets herself in place of God, or at least she she starts to be allured by the idea of setting herself up in place of God on his throne. Then verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it and she ate. Right, three descriptors here. Good for food, delight to the eyes, and desire to make one wise is, is uh, you know, greed, lust, and pride, right? And kind of see those, those right there in the initial description in verse 6 of, of initial sin. What, what um, you know, what, what appeals to what I can feel, my, my, my hands, my stomach, what appeals to what I can see, my eyes, and what makes me wise and smart and impressive and elevated and, and everyone will think highly of me. In 1 John chapter 2, John says that the, the temptation and sin that the world dangles in front of people and uses to lure them away from God is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is exactly what Satan, right? Greed Lust and pride, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, you know, uh, the delight to the eyes, or good for food, delight to the eyes, desire to make one wise. When Jesus is tempted uh, in the wilderness, Satan comes to him with three temptations. Turn this bread, turn these stones into bread so you can eat, so that your stomach will be, you know, gratified, good for food. He takes them up to the mountain. He says, look at all these kingdoms. Look at all, everything that is in the world. I will give all of them to you. Look at everything you see, right? What's, what's pleasing to the eyes? What is, what is, what is you know, desirous to look at and to see? And then three, jump off the temple. If, if God is really God and you're really the Messiah, then jump off the temple. God will save you. And what he's saying there is uh, people will see that you're the Messiah, and they will worship you, and they will, you know, make much of how great and awesome and wise you are, which is the, the pride of life, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. What's good for food, what's a delight to the eyes, and what's desired to make one wise, right? If you can, you know, do a Google search of what brings down, like, what's, what, what causes people to be 
fired or, you know, what, what kinds of, of immorality or ethical complications cause people to be, you know, CEOs or politicians. It's like, you know, embezzling money or com- committing adult sexual scandal or, you know, bullying and domineering and, and abusive leadership and behavior. Greed, lust, and, and pride. It's the exact same things that Satan was using to tempt and to kind of allure Eve from the very beginning. So Satan has, has not reinvented the wheel, right? He uses the same tactics that he used against Eve as what he uses against us today to neutralize and do harm to God's people. So Eve sees the fruit. She's enamored by it. She's allured by it. She takes it. She eats it. And then it says she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate, which is particularly important, this last uh, you know, clause in verse 6, right? Chauvinists will read Genesis chapter 3 and say, women are the problem. <laughs> women, like, it, it was, eat, eat. men are good at their core, women are bad, women are what make men sin. Eve was the one that sinned, it's her fault, sin is the result of females, not males, and therefore, women are inferior to men. Women shouldn't have a voice. Women need to do whatever men say. It's not like, it's not like, it's not like Eve is alone interacting with, with Satan and Adam is on the other side of the garden reading his Bible and praying and, you know, singing worship songs or something. It says Adam is right there with her and he took the fruit and he ate. And so, so Adam... Like, like every, every word that, that the serpent has been saying to Eve, Adam has heard it. Adam had every opportunity to step in and intervene and protect his wife from harm, confront the serpent, call his lies out for what they were, just like God called him to do when God called Adam to exercise dominion over the, over the world, when God called Adam to fill the earth with his glory and to subdue it and to bring order out of chaos and to be the, the vice regent over creation. What God is saying to Adam is, is like, look out for those around you, and most, most of all, look out for your wife, Eve. Protect her, provide for her, take care of her. When there are dangers or threats that, that threaten her and that are coming against her, you step in between her and them, and you take care of her. Adam fails at every turn. He passively lets the serpent weasel his way in. He lets the serpent deceive and prey on his wife right in front of him. He doesn't object. He doesn't try to lead her away from from danger, which is why Paul in Romans 5, when he's talking about this text, he says, uh, sin came into the world through one man, Adam. And death came through sin, so death spread to all men. Paul says Adam bears primary responsibility here. Right? Eve is no worse than Adam. In fact, it was Adam's passivity and failure to look out for and take care of his wife is the, is the main issue that's going, going on here. If Adam were faithful, he would have intervened, he would have confronted Satan, he would have protected Eve, even if it came at great cost to himself. Kind of like how Jesus intervened, protected his people, confronted Satan, even, if, even though it cost him everything. Which is why Jesus is the true and better Adam, because Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. In verse 7, the eyes of both were opened, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. So now the the innocence that that kind of characterized chapter 2 
uh, is, is gone. And, and immediately, because of the guilt and shame that kind of rush in on Adam and Eve, they, they sew these fig, fig leaf loin cloths together, which is humanity's first attempt at man-made, you know, uh, religion. Right? We, we've sinned. We've broken God's law. We are embarrassed. We are ashamed. I know what we'll do. Let's try to fix this situation ourselves. Right? Let's, let's not go to God and confess and repent. Let's hide the evidence. Let's, let's make ourselves as presentable as possible. Let's manufacture our own morality and spirituality so that we can stand before God on our own merit and so that God will accept us based on who we are and what we have done. Let's, let's fashion a man-made garment of good deeds and hope that that will cover up or outweigh the blood that is on our hands and the sin that is in our hearts. From, from the very beginning, immediately on the heels of, of humanity's sinning against God, we've, we've resisted the thought of coming to Him with, with, with transparency and vulnerability, confessing our sin, acknowledging that we're not good enough, and asking Him to be merciful and to treat us better than we deserve. From the very beginning, Humans' default response to sin is to, um, you know, to, to, to minimize, hide our sins and our, our weaknesses, accentuate and emphasize our strengths, and to try to be good enough on our own. If you come to God with your resume of your religious accomplishments, all the good things that you've done, the perfect and impressive life that you've led, and you, you think or you hope that God will be impressed with you, that is, that's a loincloth made of, of fig leaves. God is not impressed by it. In, chapter, or in verse 8, he calls out to them and he says, Where are you? I'm sorry, in, in verse 9. In verse 8, he's walking through the garden. Verse 9, he says, where are you? They say, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God responds, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Which, of course, God knows the answer to that question. Right? God's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He, I'm sorry, he's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. Nothing is kind of outside of his seeing eye. So he's not asking because he's curious. He's not asking because he doesn't know. He's asking to give uh, Adam and Eve, he's trying to draw them out, give them an opportunity to respond as he would intend for them to respond with transparency and openness and vulnerability and, you know, swing and a miss, right? The man said, uh, I mean, the man blames God, right? The, The woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So would you... Would you like to take responsibility for your actions and confess your sin to me, Adam? Pitch sails right by. All right, well, let's try Eve. Uh, what is this that you have done? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So, so if the first human response to sin is um, covering it up, right, sewing together fig leaves and trying to present ourselves to God, uh, you know, trying to hide our sin, trying to, you know, direct God's attention elsewhere to to where we are more impressive and to kind of, uh, you know, keep him from looking at our our sin and our shortcomings, then the second human response to being caught in sin is uh, blame shifting and, and finger pointing. 
not my, it's not my fault, it's hers. It's not my fault, it's yours. The, the devil made me, made me... I always used to find that interesting. If you'd watch like Law and Order, like they'd get the bad guy and he'd always be like, he'd always say, I didn't do it, right? Like they'd be like, we think you did this crime. I didn't do it. I wasn't there. Uh, you know, I, you know, and then they'd be like, well, we have DNA. Like we have your fingerprints are there. And he'd be like, oh, all right, well, but it wasn't my fault. It was someone else, like someone else. I was there, but I didn't want to do it. Someone else, like, like their, their excuse is kind of always, it's this exact same progression. I wasn't there. There, no sin took place. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, well, now, given that I know that you have some more evidence against me, I'll admit that I was there. I'll admit that it happened, but it wasn't my fault. It was someone else's fault and not mine. God, God is calling his people to confess their sin and repent of it uh, instead of minimizing it, trying to hide it, trying to, you know, whitewash it with good works or with something that they can manufacture from within themselves. And he's also calling them to, to own their sin rather than point the finger at others and shift the blame to others. And then God has three curses, one for each of these three characters here, for the serpent, and then for Eve, and then for Adam. Verse 14, he says, the serpent is going to crawl on its belly and eat dust all the days of its life. And then this enigmatic verse in, chapter, in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, which doesn't mean that women are going to be afraid of snakes. I've heard, I've heard, I've heard people say that before. It's biblical that I like Biblical that I don't like snakes. I'm not sure that that's what it's talking about here. This is saying that, um, that you've got Eve, who is kind of representative of God and God's people. Admittedly, she sinned and she's rebelled against God, but Eve was created in God's image. God loves her. God cares about her, and God cares about her offspring. They're created in his image. And then you've got Satan and, and the, the, the people of Satan, the offspring of Satan, those who have rebelled against God with Satan. And there's going to be a continual... Uh, you know, for all of human history, there will be a, just a continual cosmic battle between the people of God and between Satan. The people of God who want to know God, want to walk with God, want to trust God, they want to live with God, but they've been enticed away from God by Satan. He wants to harm them. He wants to destroy them. He has enmity against them, and they have enmity against uh, him. And there's just a continual battle between God's people and God's enemies. And then it says, and he shall bruise your head. So, so uh, a, a singular male pronoun, he. So it's not talking about Eve, because she's a female. It's not talking about Eve's offspring in general, the, the, the massive plurality of everyone that would come from, from Eve. He shall bruise your head. So, so we're talking about a male descendant of Eve, someone who would be born of a woman, who would then grow up and would, would represent all of humanity, right? For, for all of human history, uh, humanity has been battling against Satan, and, and there's conflict, and there's enmity, and at some point in human history, someone is going to be born of a woman, and he's going to rise up, and he's going to represent humanity and do battle with Satan on their behalf. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right? I'm not a doctor, but head wounds, head injuries are worse than foot injuries. Right? Just hands, hands down, 
you don't need a medical degree to know that a head injury is worse than a, than a foot injury. And so, so God is saying, Satan, someday there's going to be a man born of a woman, and he is going to, he's going to bruise your head. You, you'll bruise his heel, meaning that you will not go down without a fight. You will, you will injure and you will do serious harm to the Messiah, the Savior that is going to be born of a woman. You will deliver a painful blow to the Messiah, but he will deliver a fatal blow to you. One day, Jesus would come He would be born of a woman, born of the Virgin Mary. He would live a sinless life. He would grow up and he would face down. He would would square off against Satan himself as the representative of all humanity. And Satan would deliver a painful blow to Jesus, right? Jesus would be crucified as if he was a sinner. He would be crushed under the wrath of God. You know, undoubtedly, Jesus' heel would be bruised. But in so doing, Jesus would deliver the final, ultimate, fatal blow to Satan. Because through Christ's death on the cross and through his resurrection, Jesus achieves victory over Satan and sin and death. Jesus secures the salvation, that, the, the salvation that Satan wanted to never happen. Jesus secures it for anyone who would come to him and trust in him. Jesus crushes Satan and puts an end to Satan's plan for all of eternity. No matter how much Satan accuses God's people, they would always have a savior who would intercede for them and who would advocate for them and who would ensure that they would never be lost to Satan's schemes ever again. The serpent would bruise the Messiah's heel, but the Messiah would crush the serpent's head and would kill him once and for all. So we're already seeing seeds of the gospel story that would play out in the subsequent books of our Bible. We're already seeing seeds of that planted right here in Genesis chapter 3. And he continues, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Right? If you're a male, you ever question how painful childbirth is, right? If you ever, well, I... I was injured in JV football or whatever, and I'm sure that was probably pretty bad. Right? The, the, like, the Bible's pretty clear that, that uh, you probably don't know how bad... You, you, if you're a male and you've never given birth to a child, then you probably don't know anything about the pain that, that women experience when they, when they give birth. Right? And what's, what's going on here is, is God is saying... Um, right, it's, it's not... So, so God is, is kind of cursing and, and actually... Uh, you know, injecting suffering and hardship and difficulty into uh, something that, you know, it take, takes the, the, the overwhelming majority of, uh, of our lives, right? Because of sin, humans are going to, you know, experience pain and suffering specifically in the home, the act of giving birth, but also raising children, discipling children, disciplining children, Right? Letting your children leave the nest and go out into the world. All of these things are hard and they're difficult and they're fraught with pain and and tears. Being a member of a family is hard. And it is that way because of the fall. So we shouldn't be surprised today when being a member of a family is hard. Raising kids is hard. Childbirth is, is painful, right? 
This is the, the way that God has intended, uh, you know, this is the way that, that, this is the nature of reality from the fall on, is that life in a family, for a, for a male or female, parents or children, like life in a family is difficult. But it's not just the parent-child dynamic that's going to be marked with pain and suffering, although it is. It's also the husband and wife dynamic. He, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Right? So, so uh, you, the, the relationship between the husband and the wife is going to be marked by tension from time to time and suffering. God, God is saying to Eve, and correspondingly to all women, that this is the way I have designed marriage uh, to, to work, right? right? A, a husband is to practice godly, loving, humble, servant leadership like Jesus does, right? I want the husband to initiate. I want the husband to, to be the, the, fir- like the, the one who kind of makes the first move. I want him to be the, the lead repenter, the lead deferrer, the, the lead uh, sacrificer, and I want the wife to practice godly, loving, welcome, willing submission, and help, like Jesus did. I want the wife to help her husband. I want the wife to submit to her husband. And God is saying, that's the way I've designed it, but you're not going to like it. And you, and you are going to press back against it. Your, your innate desire is going to be to buck this system and, and you know, put yourself in authority over your husband and push back against his authority, resent his authority. The idea that the husband is supposed to lead, you're not going to want to do that. You're going to want to dominate him. And, and your innate desire will be contrary to how I designed your marriage relationship to look. Which sounds kind of familiar, right? Like, would you say that the, the, the general spirit of the age that we live in is that females in general like the idea of submitting to male headship, right? If you turn on CNN and had them, like, do a roundtable discussion on, uh, you know, male headship and females submitting to males in the, in the home or in the church. God says it's going to be a struggle. It's not going to be something that you innately want to do. It's going to be a struggle for the husband to step into his role and be the spiritual leader of his marriage and of his house. He's going to struggle to do it. He's going to want to abdicate his responsibility and say, let my wife, let the kid's mother handle that stuff. Or he's going to want to abuse his authority and become a a chauvinist, you know, abusive person who hits or yells at his family. It's going to be a struggle. It'll be a struggle for the husband to lead sacrificially like Jesus. It'll be a struggle for the wife to submit to his authority. Instead of resisting or usurping, marriage is hard. Serving and loving your spouse is hard. For wives to submit to their husband's leadership is hard. And it is that way because of sin and because of the fall. And to Adam, he says, in verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So God has already cursed the family, the home, that kind of area of human life, which constitutes a lot of it. And now God curses work and vocation, which, I don't know about you, that's, that's it. That's my whole life. I don't really do anything else other than work and be with my family. Like, I'm, you know, maybe you have a hobby or something. I don't know. But, 
to curse that, and then golf, or whatever it is your hobby is. But yeah, the, the, your, your work where you provide for your family, and then your home where you are with your family, those two things are, are cursed. And so for the man, he says, your, you know, your, your work is going to be difficult. It'll be, you won't be, it won't be like going downhill like it was before the fall. It'll be like going uphill. You'll be tired and sore at the end of the day. There used to be rich lush, lavish plants that, that needed cultivation, but cultivating them was easy and fun and enjoyable. They work with you as you work with them. Now there's going to be thorns and thistles that injure you and work against you as you try to work on them. It'll be difficult and frustrating. You'll feel overworked and underpaid. Your life with your family is going to be hard. Your life at work is going to be hard, and then you're going to die. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You're born, you suffer, you die. Welcome to James River Community Church. <laughs> right? But that's not the last word. Right? That's the effects of sin in the world, but that's not the last word. Look at verse 21. And then the Lord God made for Adam... And for his, for his wife, garments of skin and clothed them. After they sinned, they fashioned together these garbage, pathetic, loincloth, fig leaf things. And said, let's wear them and try to hide from God. God says, get that garbage out of my face. Right? I don't, I don't want your pathetic attempts to hide your sin and shame and vulnerability. I don't want you to try to come into the presence on the basis of what you have made with your hands. He dismisses their man-made attempts to make themselves acceptable before them, and instead he, he gives them garments. You don't come into my presence on the basis of your man-made efforts, some fig leaves that you made together. You don't give me your righteousness. I give you my righteousness. I'll, take, I'll accomplish your salvation. I'll give you the necessary clothing that you need. I will go kill an animal, take my wrath and my anger out on that animal for your sin, and then I will make a garment of righteousness for you to wear from it, so that you can stand before me on the basis of blood that has been shed by someone else. You can stand before me free from guilt and free from shame. It's the difference between human beings trying to get to God themselves by being good enough, and God coming to human beings and saving them and giving them salvation by his sovereign grace. Salvation does not originate in the will of man or in the efforts of man. Salvation comes from God and from his provision. Then God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take from the tree and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Right? God said, the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Adam and Eve ate it, and they, they died. They, they didn't die physically right then at that moment, although they would years later. But they did die spiritually right then at that moment. They were driven out of the garden, driven out of this Edenic paradise that they were created to, to live in. Driven out of the presence of God, right? Out to live a hard, painful life marked by suffering in the world, separated from God. And then look what God does. He drove out the man 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God takes an angel, puts it in front of the Garden of Eden, the entrance to the Garden of Eden, and says, you know, you're not allowed back in here. Sinful humans cannot come into this garden where a holy, perfect God lives. If you do, you'll die. An angel with a with a lightsaber, an angel with a sword will kill you if you try to come back in here. The world out there with pain and suffering is for sinners. And God's presence in here is only for people who are holy and righteous. You have forfeited the right to be with me and enjoy my presence. And if you try to force your way back in, you will die. In Exodus 25, God gives the instructions for the tabernacle and later for the temple. And it includes the most holy place, which is almost like... a. Uh, kind of the, the, the Garden of Eden is almost a prototype for the most holy place inside the tabernacle and the temple. It's the place where God would dwell. No one's allowed in the most holy place inside the tabernacle or the temple. If you go in there, you will die. The only one that's allowed in there is the high priest. Once a year, he's allowed to go in there and make sacrifices for his people. And on the curtain that that separated the most holy place inside the temple from everything else uh, on the curtain was stitched a cherubim. So God says, here's the Garden of Eden, here's a cherubim guarding it, you're not allowed in, and if you come in, you'll die. Later, here's the most holy place, it's where God dwells, here's the curtain demarcating its boundaries, on it is a cherubim, and if you come in, you will die. For all of human history, God has existed somewhere, humanity has existed elsewhere, humanity wants to get to God, but if they try to get to God, they die. A cherubim will kill you. Matthew 27, Jesus is dying on the cross. Satisfying the wrath of God that here to then had had been barring them from coming into God's presence. And when Jesus dies on the cross, the temple in the curtain that was separating the most holy place where God dwells from everywhere else where humanity dwells, the temple of the curtain with the cherubim on it is torn in two. Specifically, it says from top to bottom, meaning that God himself tore the curtain in two. God himself, the the barrier that he had established in Genesis 3 that says you are not allowed to come and be with me. When Jesus dies on the cross, God dissolves that barrier. He, He destroys the barrier. He rips it in two and he's effectively saying you can come back and be with me. Sinners can enter into the presence of God now. If you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you don't need to fear the wrath of God anymore. You've kept your distance knowing that a cherubim would kill you if you tried to come near me, but through Christ's death on the cross, that is no more. My wrath has been exhausted. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have obtained access to me by faith. You can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. You can know that you will not find wrath and judgment, but rather you'll find mercy and help in your time of need. 
In Genesis 1, we see that God is the sovereign creator of everything. He's distinct from his creation. He's sovereign over it. He's in charge and he's holy. Genesis 2, we see God create humanity in his image with dignity and worth and authority and responsibility. And now in Genesis 3, we are seeing that God is holy and sovereign. And this presents a problem for us as sinners. We've rebelled against God. We've denied that God is who he says he is. We've believed wrong things about God. We've tried to set ourselves up in place of God and take our seat on the throne that is rightfully his. And because of that, we are cast out of the presence of God. No matter how much we try to make ourselves acceptable, no matter how much we point the blame at others, point our fingers at others, or or cast blame on them, we cannot be in the presence of God. We'll die. Sin is that big of a deal. And your only hope is to take refuge in the Savior that God has provided for you. Turn from your sin, run to him, trust in him, hold fast to him, and hide in him. When when the wrath of God falls all around you, you hide in Christ. Put on the garments of righteousness that he provides for you so that he will welcome you back into his presence. If you hear nothing else, hear that. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Don't wait another moment. Jesus stands offering you the free gift of salvation. All you have to do is receive it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we read this text detailing how sin entered into the world and how it destroys the lives of your people. We're convicted. We're convicted of how we fail to believe that you are who you say you are. We fail to believe your word. We're convicted that we, like Adam and Eve, we seek to set ourselves up as God and take your throne for ourselves. We're convicted of how we try to hide our sin and minimize it. We're convicted of how we try to blame others when we are caught in sin. Lord, we need your grace. We need you to provide salvation for us because we can't save ourselves. We need you to defeat Satan for us because we cannot defeat him ourselves. And we need you to reconcile us back to God because we cannot make our way back on our own. In Jesus' name that we pray.